Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time we have to look into your word. And Father, we pray that you would protect us from idolatry. Lord, taking your word and misusing it. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and teach us now. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and open our eyes to see the truth of your word, that you would, by your spirit, empower us so that our lives would reflect that of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so, Father, we pray that, indeed, as we sung, come, Jesus, not just your second coming, O Lord, but we pray that you would come even now through your spirit to teach to guide and to instruct us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So time is the enemy of many things, isn't it? Some of you purchased a home. When you bought it, it was nice, it was new. And then what happened over time? The uh, things start to decay. The roof needs to be replaced. The fence needs to be painted. Or maybe it was a, a nice car. You ever bought a nice car and drove it off the lot? Boy, you're washing that thing all the time. After a few years go by, kids scratch it up a little bit, the seats tear, the oil starts to leak. I mean, when's the last time you washed your car now? Pollen season, right? It's one of the last time I washed my car, I think. Over time, things start to decay. Time is the enemy of a lot of things. It's the enemy of our body. Time takes its toll on our bodies. But time is also the enemy of enthusiasm, Last week, Jeff talked about going on vacation. He talked about how you go on vacation, you never want to come back. I don't know what kind of vacation he takes, but sometimes vacation, when you go on vacation, you're ready to come back. At first, the sand is warm and the breeze is cool and the sound of the waves is refreshing. But you've got to admit, after a week, you are ready to come home. What, what seemed like so exciting at first, time has drained your enthusiasm. Or you've gone, okay. How about Disney World? You go to Disney World for a week, you are ready to come home. Time is the enemy of enthusiasm. Vacationers want to end their vacation. Millionaires get tired of money and the things that money can buy. Kids get tired of toys. Oh, they wanted it for Christmas, they begged for it, they pleaded with you to get it. They get it, and then what happens after a number of weeks? Could it be days? It is forgotten in the closet. Time is the enemy of enthusiasm. A similar thing is true for Christians. Christians get tired of doing good. What started off as pure excitement and energy oftentimes fades into monotony, boredom, weariness. You're teaching life change. At first it was so exciting. You're leading a small group. Wow, you're really into it, and now you're looking for ways to get out. You're serving in the nursery. You're a greeter. You just can't wait for a couple more weeks when you get a switch to study. Your enthusiasm has faded. Reading the Bible, scripture memory. The beginning of the year, maybe you started off with these eager plans, and now you're lucky to get five minutes of quiet time with the Lord. Some of you attend seminary. 
I know how it is, you seminary students. You're so excited to get here. Finally, you arrive in Wake Forest. Move all your stuff in. And then the first year, you realize just how hard it is. Seminary, the courses, taking care of your family, providing for everything, working full-time. Your enemy, the enemy that you feel is there. Enthusiasm starts to drain. Time has taken its toll on your life and your ministry. Your, your joy has faded. Your enthusiasm has waned. Your love has grown cold. Or as Paul says in our text, if you turn there to, Roman, to uh, Galatians 6 and verse 9, you, you've grown weary of doing good. Weariness has set in. As we look at the text in Galatians 6, this, we're in a section of Paul's final exhortations. Um, he has been, uh, up to this point, uh, and through chapter 5, giving us a lot of theology. In chapter 6, he really turns on the application. And what he tells us in chapter 6 with these exhortations, these, these commands, is built upon the previous discussion. And we don't want to miss this. What Paul's been arguing is that works don't save us. Specifically, he was talking about circumcision, but he says works don't save us. Christ alone saves us. If we try to do good works in order to earn favor with God, he says we minimize, actually we neutralize the value of Christ's atonement. This morning, if you've come here and you're looking for a way to make yourself better, Paul's advice is there's only one way to gain favor before God, and that is to repent of your sins, to look to Christ, to see the bankruptcy of your own works, to trust in him alone for salvation. And so when we look at the commands in this text, it's, imp- it's very important that we don't confuse them. He's not trying to tell us how we earn our salvation. As a matter of fact, these are the ways that we live in the spirit. That is for those who already have the spirit of Christ. And so these are practical ways that we walk in the spirit, as he said back in chapter 5, verse 16. These are tangible expressions of the fruit of the spirit, as he said in chapter 5, verse 22. Or these are ways we live in the spirit, chapter 5, verse 25. So don't confuse these commands. Uh, This can be done by a non-Christian. Maybe you're visiting for the first time. Uh, And this can be done by a Christian. For a non-Christian, we might say, oh, if I do these, these commands, then I can earn my salvation. And as I said, that's not what the commands are intended for. But also for Christians. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul warned the Galatians, are you going to begin in the spirit and then continue on in the flesh? Even as a Christian, we walk in the spirit. And so what Paul's giving us are practical ways we can do that. Practical ways we walk in the spirit. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 6, 2, last week, Jeff explained to us that we need to bear one another's burdens. And so in verses 6 through 10, we have some practical ways which we can do that. So let's read this text one more time. This is from the uh, ESV. Verse 6. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. 
Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Notice in this text there are four commands. There are two positive commands and two negative commands. He says, uh, share, in verse 6. Do not be deceived, verse 7. Let us not grow weary, verse 9. Let us do good, verse 10. And so these four commands will serve as the the outline by which we walk through the text. These four commands then are the the four imperatives, the four main points as we walk through this text together. So first thing he says is this. Share with your teachers, with your instructors. Share with your teachers. Verse 6. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now in the context of of the letter, the situation at Galatia... Uh, evidently the Galatians were not sharing with their teachers. And so Paul instructs them, you need to do this. We don't know exactly why they were doing, why they weren't sharing. Uh, perhaps they had started off well and were then growing weary of doing good. Perhaps they were misusing their freedom in Christ, saying, hey, we're free in Christ, therefore we don't need to give. We're not under the law, we don't need to support our teachers. Or perhaps they were beginning to think, oh, since we're all equal in Christ, as Paul taught them, then we don't need somebody who's a teacher over us. And so they began to say, we don't need that person. We don't need to support that person. Or perhaps they were feeling the economic pinch and they began, you know, money was tight and so they began to pull back or completely cut off their giving. We don't know the full context. Paul doesn't share that with us. But we do know this. Out of all the things Paul could have mentioned, he instructs the church to share with their teachers. And what this tells us about something about the calling of leaders. You see, only some people are called to be teachers. Not everyone's called to be a leader or a teacher in the church. Not everyone is called to preach or to teach. We see that even in the very beginning of the early church, there was a special class of teachers, these instructors, and he commands the church to provide for them. Some give instruction, some receive instruction. This is what James says. He says, not many of you should become teachers. Ephesians 4.11, Paul says that Christ gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Not everyone is called to be a teacher. But those who are called are called to specifically teach the word. That is the duty of a teacher, a preacher, an elder, pastor, is to instruct, to teach clearly, firmly the word of God. They are not to offer opinions. They are not to soften God's word when it's culturally expedient, they are to preach the word. Paul himself says, the word of the cross is folly. 
to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. He commands Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. And so the content of what teachers are to share, to teach, to instruct, is the word of God. But notice also in this text the command to the learners. They are commanded to share all good things with their teachers. Well, what does it mean, all good things? What is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about financially supporting your teachers. Uh, the same word is used in Luke one fifty three, where it says, He has filled the hungry with good things. In Luke 16.18, this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Abraham says to the rich man, child, he says, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things. God blessed you with many good things. And so the command is to share the blessings of God that we have with our teachers. This principle of sharing, providing for the needs of leaders in the church is found in in, in the New Testament, is consistent with what we find in the New Testament. Jesus himself said what? He said the worker is worthy of his wages. The worker deserves his wages. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Those who proclaim the gospel, listen, should get their living by the gospel. Later on, he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy five seventeen. He says, let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And he goes on to explain what that means. He says, for the scripture says you don't muzzle the ox while he's treading the grain. In other words, the one who's working should be rewarded. And then he quotes the words of Jesus. The worker is worthy of his wages. Those who teach, those who lead, those who spend their time in the church training should receive the good things from those who teach them. Well, this tells us something about the teaching ministry in the church, doesn't it? First of all, it, it, it shows us that teaching, the teaching ministry is important. It's so important that Paul makes sure the church doesn't neglect it. And notice this, too. The focus is not on the teachers to ask for money. The focus is on the, those who receive the teaching to freely give. It also shows us that those who dedicate their time to teaching should be compensated for their work. If, if most of their time is spent studying and teaching and training and counseling, they do not have time to go and look for work elsewhere. Thus, the church has a responsibility to provide for their needs. But it also shows us this, that when you give, you are demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, and you are bearing one another's burdens, as Paul said earlier in verse 2. Well, certainly this principle could be abused, couldn't it? It has been abused in the church. You look at the church even today. You see, leaders are abusing this system of receiving money, uh, financial support, the good things from the congregation. Uh, Some people are in it for the money. Paul warns about this in 2 Corinthians 2.17. He says, unlike so many, we are not like those who peddle the word of God for profit. There were people peddling the word of God for profit. 
He warns Timothy about those who desire to, who desire to get rich. They fall into temptation. Peter warns the elders not to be greedy for money. It can be abused by the leaders. It's true in our own time. It was true during the time of the Reformation. Martin Luther says uh, that this is you know, in the 16th century. He says, The riches of the bishops and the rest of the clergy so increased that they had in possession the best and the most fruitful grounds. All manner of good things were not only abundantly given to the clergy, but also they overflowed in wealth and riches. One of those who he's probably, he may be referring to is the Cardinal Woolsey. This is what it says about Cardinal Woolsey. His revenues from his resources that he had uh, were so enormous, and he did not hesitate to use them in a lavish display. Listen to this. He lived in the great style of a monarch. On special expeditions, he was attended by 4,000 horsemen, including nobles, prelates, and knights. At home, his ordinary establishment at Hampton Court numbered about 1,000 persons. Some nine or ten nobles, each with several servants, waited upon him. To attend his table, there were 12 chaplains, a physician, four legal advisors, two secretaries, a herald at arms, and other courtiers. It is hardly surprising to learn that he disliked the Reformation. It can be abused by the leaders, and it has been abused. But this can also be abused by the learners, those who give, in a couple different ways. One is that it can be abused by control. Those who give the money think, hey, because I'm supporting the church and their leaders, I can control what they say and what they do. Because I'm supporting them after all. Here's what John Stott says about this. He says, Some congregations exercise such a positive tyranny over their pastor and almost blackmail him into preaching what they want to hear. Control. But there's also another extreme. By supporting your leaders financially, it can lead to complacency. You might say, wait a minute, I don't don't need to do anything because after all, I'm paying the the leaders of the church, to do the work of the ministry. Paul says, no, they're they're there to train you to do the work of the ministry. And so the other danger is complacency. Uh, Why why do I need to serve? That's what we pay the, the staff for. Well, how can you share with your teachers practically? Let me just mention a few things. Number one, you can give of your treasure. Give of your, your resources. Give of your good things. God has blessed you. You can bless others. You can share the burden of the church. But you can also give of your time and your talents. Uh, This may may involve uh, fixing up their homes, uh, their cars, or their bikes, or their bodies that are broken from falling on their bikes. There are a lot of ways we can share the good things that we have. Here's another example. I found this in Noteworthy, which is the church's newsletter. It says, in addition to their regular weekly meetings, once a month our elders meet for an extended time over dinner. The next date, mark this down, set for September 13th. If you would like to serve our leadership, share all good things with them. By preparing a meal sometime during 2010, please contact our church office. There's a practical way you can share all good things 
with those who teach you. Secondly, Paul says in this text, we need to avoid self-deception. Do not be deceived, he says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Don't be deceived. Now, there are different types of deception, aren't there? Sometimes we're self-deceived. That's our own, our own flesh, our own sinful nature will deceive us. John says in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Do you trust yourself? When you make decisions, do you always trust yourself? Be careful. We are prone to deceive ourselves and to justify our own sin. But it's not just our own self that deceives us. It's the the world, the things that the world has to offer. Deception is found within, but it's also found without. Uh, The book of Hebrews, it talks about being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It says in Hebrews 11.25, by faith... Moses, rather than being mistreated, um, with the, chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You see, sin does offer certain pleasures, but the Bible reminds us that they are fleeting. You see, there's a deception there that the world says, come and enjoy. And then as soon as we enjoy those those. Pleasures fly away. Ourselves, the world, but also the devil. The devil is tempting us by the lie of sin. Jesus was tempted by the devil. John tells us that the devil is the father of lies. And Paul speaks of the schemes of the devil and the snares that the devil lies, tempting us. You see, the truth about sin and deception is this. It's against God. When we sin, it's against God. We mock God. This idea of mocking is to to turn your nose in contempt against God. You see, what he's saying is this. Those who think that they can sow sin and disobedience and still reap eternal life are mocking God. They will reap corruption. They mock God. Interestingly, though, the text says what? God is not mocked, or God will not be mocked. What's he talking about? God is not mocked. I think what he's saying is this. Ultimately, God is not mocked. Perhaps it's like a father who says to a a son, you will not talk to me in that tone of voice, when he just talked to him in that tone of voice. What's the father mean? The father means something like, by talking to me in that tone of voice, you will receive consequences. You will not talk to me in that tone of voice without receiving consequences, it's understood. God is not mocked. Oh, you can mock God, but you will reap what you sow. There are some biblical examples of this. The story of uh, Naaman when he was, <clears throat> uh, had leprosy. And he goes to Elisha to 
get the leprosy cleansed. Elisha tells him, go in the Jordan River. And he looks and he says, that dirty old river? How's that going to help me? We got better rivers where I'm from. Cleaner, nicer. But he does it anyway and he's cleansed. He's healed. And Elisha takes nothing from, from Naaman. No payment. Well, the servant of Elisha, Gehazi, he's like, well, wait a minute. Man, we could have really got... I mean, he had just truckloads full of silver and, and garments. And Gehazi, the servant's thinking, wow, we really missed out here. So he sneaks off. As Naaman's leaving, he finds him. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. Some, some visitors just came and, uh, and we need some stuff now. So can you give me some silver and clothes? Gladly, he says, Sure. He returns back, and here's what Elisha says to him. He says, was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? You mocked God, but God is not mocked. Therefore, he says, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. God is not mocked. Or you think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It says in Acts 5, uh, verse 1, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And, in, and with his wife's knowledge, they kept back some for themselves from the proceeds, and they brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You mocked God, but God is not mocked. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last Sin and deception is against God. God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. We also see about sin and deception is that it always ends bad. He says it ends in corruption. Flesh leads to corruption, but the spirit leads to eternal life. Earlier, if you look back to chapter, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, he talked about the, what it means to sow in the flesh. He says uh, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will reap what you sow. And so Paul warns, don't be deceived. He said in, in 1 Corinthians 15, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. You reap what you sow. The wages of sin is death. Again, a quote from John Stott. He says, every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, to nurse a grievance, to entertain an impure fantasy, or to wallow in self-pity, we are sowing in the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist. Every time we lie in bed when we 
ought to be up and praying. Every time we view pornography, every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing to the flesh. Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they don't reap holiness. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. If we are to reap a harvest, we must sow in the spirit and not in the flesh. Avoid self-deception. But thirdly, he says, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Don't, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. There are certain causes of weariness. Now notice he says, you don't usually start off weary. You notice that. You, you grow weary. Well, how do we grow weary? There are certain causes. Sometimes it's, as we, as we serve, it, it could be lack of recognition. Uh, we don't feel appreciated for the hard work we're doing, and we grow weary in that. It could be serving for the wrong reasons. <clears throat> it could be serving out of guilt or pride or fear of man. It could be physical issues, health issues, and we grow weary physically. But it could also be laziness. We're growing weary because we're letting the flesh take over being lazy. But as I mentioned earlier, it could just be a matter of time. Over time, you simply grow weary from doing good. And you might ask the question, as I did as I was preparing this message, is it ever okay to rest? Is it ever okay to take a break, to step back, to take a sabbatical? And I thought, well, I thought yeah, it is. Or else I'll have to rebuke Larry. But I think it's okay to step back from ministry if it's done for the right reasons. You know, stepping back to spend more time with family. After all, the Bible says if, if we cannot manage our own family well, then we're not fit to lead the church. So we have to have our priorities. Um, it, it could be to step back to seek the Lord's direction. Sometimes in the busyness, we lose our focus. And so we step back and seek the Lord's direction. Or it could be stepping back to re-energize. Just, we are weary. Sometimes uh, my wife, you know, she, she homeschools our four kids. And once in a while, she'll just say, time out, I need a day off. And so, you know, we do what we can to provide a day off so that she can go and re-energize. That's good. But what Paul's saying is, let us, let us be careful that in our service, we're not growing weary. Maybe things like that can help us not to grow weary to the point where we're burnt out. Um, you know, I, I also think it's, it's wrong to think that, we, we're, that we're so important in ministry that we can't take a break. You know, that, that everything, everybody needs me and, and I've not trained anyone else to take over. Well, that's also a bad thing. And so, but the reality is, is that sometimes we do grow weary, don't we? We serve, we serve, we serve, and we grow weary. But we're, also, we're often encouraged by what we read in the scriptures, uh, lately, I've been, uh, at our, at our uh, family devotion time, we're, we're going through the uh, stories of the Old Testament right now, and we're reading through the story of Joseph. And Joseph is amazing. He's such an, such an encouragement to read that story. Now here's, a, here's the son, the favored son, 
who, you know, has the nice clothes and the cool dreams and everything. And, and then what do his brothers do to him? Here, here he comes, Joseph, the dreamer. Um, let's kill him, throw him in a pit. No, let's sell him. So he goes from being the favored son to being thrown in a pit and then being sold as a slave by his own brothers. I don't know, that might have been a time when I might have said, you know, that's, that's it. Um, I'm getting tired of doing good. It's not working out too well. But he was faithful. He worked hard. He was bought by Potiphar, became so faithful in his service that he basically became the manager of Potiphar's estate. And what happened from doing good? Wrongfully accused of a crime, of Potiphar's wife. Thrown in prison. Did he throw in the towel and say, well, I'm weary of doing good. That's it. No, he was still faithful. So much so that he was recognized by the jailers and he was given the task and became the, basically in control of the jail. And then uh, a couple of Pharaoh's uh, servants are found in, in prison. One of them's the cupbearer and, and the baker. They have dreams and Joseph interprets the dreams and one of them's gonna be let free and one of them's gonna die and it happens. And he says to the cupbearer, when this happens, don't forget me. He forgets him. But he continues to do good. And finally, after a couple of years, uh, Pharaoh has dreams and the cupbearer remembers. There's somebody he knows who's pretty good at that. And then he becomes second in charge over all of Egypt. And then his brothers come, the family comes. And then what happens as Joseph's dying, or as uh, Jacob, the father, is dying and finally dies, the brothers are panicking. They're thinking what? Now that the father is dead, the wrath of Joseph is going to come upon us. But we read that, no, instead he trusted in God's goodness and God's sovereignty. He didn't grow weary of doing good. Or think of the story of uh, William Wilberforce, who sought to end slavery in, in England. He was discouraged. He had spent, uh, this is in the 1790s, he had, he had for 10 years trying to, in Parliament, pass bills that would end slavery, the slave trade. He was tired and frustrated. One day he was flipping through his Bible and, uh, and as he was doing that, a note came out, a piece of paper. He opened it up. It was a letter from John Wesley that Wesley had written to him right before his death. And he read this letter from, from John Wesley. It said, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion of England and human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them altogether stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. It It took Wilberforce another 16 years to finally pass the Slave Trade Act of 1807 to end the slave trade. He was not weary of doing good. In the power of the Spirit, he persevered. Well, notice also in this verse, the, uh, in these verses, the consequence of not growing weary. He says, you will reap, you will reap 
if you do not grow weary. You will reap in due time. In due time. You see, it's God's timing, not our timing, when, we, when the harvest comes. We're always looking for the harvest. We did something, where is it? And he says, it's in God's in due time. It, it, it may be in this life, it may be in the life to come. Peter says to Jesus, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one that has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and in the age to come eternal life. We will reap if we do not give up. Ultimately, our reward is eternity with Christ. And so he says, be steadfast. Don't grow weary. But then finally, he says, serve. Serve others, especially other believers. Verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Serve everyone, he says. And this, I think, is a summary of the first 10 verses. He says, so then, kind of wrapping things up. Let me wrap it all up for you. Serve everyone, all people. You might say, well, wait a minute. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1, I'm free for freedom Christ has set you free. What do you mean serve? Well, he, Paul goes on in verse 13 of chapter 5, says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Christ has freed you to be a servant, to serve others, to serve your neighbors, to serve your family and friends and co-workers. You can serve others through ministries of the church, um, the feed ministry, the teen mops ministry. could be the men's or the women's ministry. It could be through runner's camp. It could be through the hope counseling or through the ESL classes. There are ample, ample opportunities to serve others. But notice he says, serve especially other believers. We're all the same family, the same household, the household of faith. Jew and Gentile. He's saying is that race, race, ethnicity, color should never divide the people of God. As a family, what do we do? We pray for one another. We love one another. We serve one another. We bear one another's burdens. We, we give good gifts to those who teach us. What are some practical examples that we can do this to serve one another? Well, as you know, in, in our church, we have something called Study Serve. For six months, half of you will be studying while the other half are serving during the time of the traditional Sunday school hour, a next hour for you. Then in, in a couple of weeks, we'll switch. Half of you will go from studying to serving and from serving to studying. There are opportunities. Notice it says, as we have opportunity, let us serve. Praise God, in two weeks, there are a couple of hundred opportunities. This is wonderful news for you, because now you have opportunity to serve. Let me give you some examples, and you can go either in the back after the service and sign up, or go on the website. I went on the website this week, and uh, here are some of the ways that you are able to serve, if it's your turn to do that. Hospitality servers, lobby greeters, parking lot attendants, crossing guards, ushers, prayer support, 
uh, recording tech, soundboard tech, video stream tech. You could be working with infants and toddlers. There's the bed babies. There's the crawling babies. There's the toddlers, the two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds. Each one of those is a separate class. We need you to fill those spots. Now, if I could just stop right here. Let me exhort the young marrieds among us, because I know there's a lot of them. Maybe you either have small children or you don't have children yet. The ones I just mentioned, those are the hardest spots to fill. And it's really, it shouldn't be that way. We have so many young people. You know what? You don't have kids yet? You're young married? This is the job for you. you this is perfect practice. Oh, you, you think parenting is easy and you're going to know how to do it? Oh, no. You need to sign up. I, I encourage you. I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> you need to do this. This will be good for you. There's no reason we can't, we can't fill those slots up today. There's absolutely no reason. And so, young married couples, um, the Spirit of the Lord is going to work in your heart this morning. There are other, there are other spots we need with working with the children, the pre-K class, the kindergarten. There's first grade, second grade, there's third and fourth grade, fifth grade, middle school. Um, there's life change. We need host couples. We need hospitality coordinators. And there's some random spots like uh, rotating staff, substitute teachers. And one of my favorites, this is an actual spot, slot that you can serve. It's, this is the title, Wherever God Needs Me. It sounds kind of vague, like, yeah, maybe that one. Maybe you don't have to do anything. I don't know. That sounds kind of dangerous to me. <laughs> there could be a lot of needs going on out there, so you better, you better be careful with that one. And the great thing about this is this. You don't need to grow weary because in six months you're going to be blessed by being released from that duty, delight, and you're going to be able to study again. I praise God for the way the church does this because it allows us not to grow weary in doing good. We can for six months give it all we got and we know that there's a break coming up. Well, as I conclude... Let me just remind us of this. Jesus is our example. He's our savior. Mark 10, 45. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. He is our example in that. But he's more than our example. He's our savior. Because it says he gave to give his life a ransom for many. Praise God that he did not grow weary from doing good. That he was faithful all the way to the death on the cross. When he was on the cross to be able to say, to tell us die, it is finished. That through now, through the spirit that we receive, we're able to walk in newness of life and to serve one another gratefully, joyfully. So as we think about not growing weary, I pray that our attention would be focused on Christ. And not just on our own efforts, not just on our own self, but that we remember our Lord and Jesus, our Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was faithful to the point of death for us. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the one who was perfect, your son, whom you sent to come and to
live a perfect life, to never grow weary, but to the very end be faithful to the point of death, even death on the cross. Father, we thank you that our life is in him. We thank you that our good works um, that we know will never amount to anything, but your scriptures say are just filthy rags, that we can look to Christ and receive eternal life. And Father, we thank you that when we, by faith, trust in Christ, that we receive your spirit and can then walk in the newness of life that you give us. And so, Father, help us to do that. Help us to not grow weary. But, Father, help us to always be mindful of Christ who went before us and who is our example and more so is our Savior. For we pray in his name. Amen.